everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Talking Space. This is special episode 803, and it's also a special day. This would happen to be recorded on Leap Day. So to celebrate this once every four years holiday, we decided to go in a little bit of a different direction from our usual Talking Space episodes. This will be a standalone episode where we're delving into more the world of anthropology. Why would we be doing that? Well, it turns out there's a huge and very special space connection here. So tonight we have joining us Jean McCulka. Welcome, Jean. Thank you, Cassie. Kind of nursing myself back from the uh, yellow galloping rot here, but uh, we'll stick with it and uh, I'll be very, very, uh, very excited to talk to our guest tonight. Well, we're really, really glad to have you back. That's for sure. And also, welcome to Kat Robison. Hi, I am really happy and really excited to be here. And also very excited to be able to introduce our special guest for the evening. Our guest is Danielle Adams, who is a doctoral candidate in the Middle East and North African Studies Program at the University of Arizona, my alma mater. She also has a minor in anthropology. Anthropology is where Danielle and I first met, though we also did take classes together in what was then the Near Eastern Studies Department, where I have one of the last degrees with that school on it. I'm very happy to have Danielle here tonight. Danielle, thank you so much for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to be here. The reason we have Danielle on tonight, and I'm very excited to talk about this, is a project that Danielle is doing called Two Deserts, One Sky, an Arab star calendar. But before we get into that, Danielle, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I grew up in New Jersey, and I came to Arizona, uh, I guess, about nine years ago for <laughs> my PhD program. Uh, I'm a long-term student, I suppose. And I've been uh, working on a PhD in a field where you kind of have to build your own degree. Uh, the field is cultural astronomy. It's essentially the anthropology of astronomy. And it looks at how people relate to the night sky. And so I'm getting at that through Middle Eastern and North African studies, as well as anthropology, and then of course, astronomy. So it's a very interdisciplinary degree. I have two awesome young boys, Aiden and Kalen, and I want to give them a shout out. Aiden is 10 years old and he's studying space right now at school. So, Aww. and uh, just tonight, Kalen was remarking how uh, the stars were so pretty as he uh, got out of the car at night. So love those guys. And they're part of my inspiration for all of this. Oh, that's so sweet. So can you tell us a little bit more about Two Deserts, One Sky itself? Absolutely. So the project that you see on the website at onesky.arizona.edu is a small portion of my dissertation research. 
And the goal of this project is to form a bridge between cultures. These days we hear a lot of news about the Middle East and most of it, frankly, is not very good news. Uh, there's a lot of political strife and it's easy to get caught up in all of that news and miss some of the really great stuff and the really great connections that we have between our cultures. So here in Tucson, Arizona, we're at a latitude that is very similar to the latitude of portions of the Middle East. And so tonight, if you look at the night sky here in Tucson, it's the same sky that you'll see a few hours later or earlier in the Middle East. And in my research, I go back quite a ways about 1400 years ago to some of the earliest poetry that I use in my research. And at that point, the sky looks a little bit different due to uh, the precession of the equinoxes, but it mostly means that things will appear in the sky about three weeks later than they used to back at that time. So pretty much we're seeing the same sky. And so the whole idea of two deserts, one sky, is that we're here in the Sonoran Desert in Tucson and seeing the same sky that is seen from the Arabian Desert many thousands of miles away. So not only are you taking us across different cultures in this project, but you're also even taking us across different times because you're focusing on some earlier poetry that is looking up at the night sky, and yet we can connect that to a context we might be more familiar with in the Sonoran Desert. Yes, that's right. In fact, a big part of the project is to look at how the sky uh, most likely appeared to Arab tribes and peoples during that time, even before the influence of Greek astronomy and Indian astronomy. So, you know, a big part of my own dissertation research is to examine the cultural encounters that took place around the field of astronomy and how that ultimately changed the cosmology of the Arabs at that time. It's very fascinating. Will you tell us a little bit about the culture of the Arab world at the time in which you're looking at a culture that, as you alluded to before, we hear a lot of things in the news about the Middle East now, and those are not necessarily the culture or, or related to the culture you're looking at now. So why don't you give our viewers a sense of what that culture was like? Sure. One of the first things I always like to mention is that culture was not monolithic at that time. And a lot of the old texts that I'm using that are written in Arabic, uh, you'll see them say the Arabs. So even by that time, this is probably 800s AD, already they're kind of looking back at the culture monolithically. But in fact, there were many different Arab tribes spread throughout the region. And a lot of them have shared beliefs and traditions, but a lot of them also differed quite a bit. Some of them practiced astral worship, some did not. There was quite a lot of variation in Arab tribes at that time. And so that's probably one of the most important things to recognize that, you know, as we try to piece together the sky, that this represents a conglomeration of many beliefs. And it's possible that some people saw the sky in all these ways, but 
many people may have taken bits and pieces that we see. This is this is all really fascinating, Danielle. And I really want to dive deeper into a lot of the things that you've brought up here. But before that, what got you interested in astronomy in the first place? Let's talk a little bit about your own personal motivations that kind of led you to your interest in astronomy, your interest in the early Arab culture, that kind of brought you to a place where you would be ready to do this project and ready to do your dissertation in cultural astronomy? Well, I guess I got into astronomy by the time I was seven years old. Uh, I received my first telescope from my grandmother when I was seven. And at this point, I can't really remember whether I'd already expressed an interest in the sky or she just took a chance. But whatever uh, happens, it definitely took and it stuck. And I remember hours and hours observing at night with the telescope and making observations and drawing what I saw through the telescope. As I grew up in New Jersey, I was part of the New Jersey Astronomical Association that met at Voorhees State Park, close to my home. And you know, I loved the time when we would have star parties and you would get to share the wonders of the night sky with the general public. And you know, some of them had seen these things before, and a lot of them really hadn't. And, you know, you see that sense of wonder. And then sometimes that sense of wonder would also come not from seeing something amazing through the eyepiece, but hearing something amazing about the sky, about what they're seeing up in the sky. And, you know, over time, for me, that component really became quite strong. And, you know, I was always fascinated by the Greek stories about the sky and the way that the constellations were put together and the etymology of the star names. And so if you fast forward many years later, I found myself working on a master's degree at the American University of Beirut. And that master's degree was focusing on Arabic literature. And one day I was in the library and uh, came upon this article about, well, in the article, it was called Archaeoastronomy. That's essentially the archaeology of astronomy. It's kind of the archaeology version or parallel for cultural astronomy. And I was talking about how, in addition to the ancient megalithic sites around the world and you know famous places like Stonehenge and whatnot, that there was also this vast array of Arabic writings about the sky, many of which had never even been translated and accessible to uh, Western audiences. And this happened about the same time that I was reading through Arabic poetry and other famous Arabic works like The Thousand and One Nights. And I saw that there was so much astronomical imagery in these works. And so I was already writing my term papers and whatnot in the direction of astronomy when I made this discovery in the library. And for me, it just brought so many different areas of interest together. And so I've been pursuing this cultural astronomy ever since. Wow, that's a that's a really amazing story and really interesting because it's one that, you know, you and I have known each other for quite a long time and I've not even heard that. So it was just really fascinating. When you're telling me about your passion for kind of sharing astronomy, I just thought of that trip we took up to Page, Arizona, to, yeah. to see the annular eclipse. So I can attest to all of our listeners that Danielle is incredibly passionate about 
sharing astronomy. Absolutely. And I remember I was fortunate enough to see both of the Venus transits in the past decade. The first one I was in Beirut for, I guess maybe that was just a little bit over a decade ago. Then the next one I was in Arizona for. So yeah, I love, uh, definitely love amateur astronomy still, but then having the cultural background really adds a new dimension to it. So the project that you're doing now, the Two Deserts, One Sky, how did that get started? Well, as I mentioned earlier, what you see on the website is an outgrowth of my dissertation research. And even though I'm just now at the point of writing my dissertation, in reality, I've been aiming towards this research for quite some time. And so I've become rather familiar with the material. And as I approached this current academic year, I uh, made an application to the NASA Space Grant Program. And part of the application process has you write a proposal for the kind of project you want to do. And the NASA Space Grant Program is very much education-focused and outreach-focused. They want you to be able to take your research and disseminate it in a way that will impact people. And that impact is something that you define in your research proposal. And for me, I really want to see people come away with a greater understanding of the many cultures that feed into our night sky, not just the Greek stories, but you know, as you look into the night sky, it's a cultural hodgepodge. I mean, the names of the constellations are Latin names. The brightest stars have Greek letters, but most of the internationally recognized star names are Arabic in origin. The catch is that most of those Arabic origin star names are actually Arabic descriptions of Greek star pictures, and few of them actually get back to what presumably existed before that point. So in my application process, I, I really focused on just the desire to inspire people with this cultural knowledge that uh, hasn't really been made public before this point, at least not here in the U.S. And so I submitted the application and I was very fortunate to receive a space grant for this academic year. You know, it's a wonderful program and I'm just really excited to be part of it. We talk a lot about various NASA grants, particularly to do with inventions and technology. And I think, I hope our listeners are interested to hear that some of these grants go to extremely different projects. That's one of the reasons we were so excited to hear about your project, in fact, <laughs> because we're always trying to highlight what NASA's doing outside of just launching rockets and planning to go to Mars. But yeah, so we like to highlight these programs and highlight these different things. Now, are there specific requirements? How does it work when you have one of these grants? Like what are you required to fulfill for them or being a non-academic? I'm kind of curious. Sure. The NASA Space Grant Program is a program that has both graduate level and undergraduate level components. Uh, of course, I'm going to be more familiar with the graduate level part of the grant, but it is available at both levels. And the goal of it, of course, is to help people get through school. But, you know, instead of, say, teaching 
for that funding, you are creating a project that has a big outreach focus. That's the whole, you know, the end result of the grant should be some form of outreach, whether that may be working with kids in a classroom or, you know, at a science center or planetarium. For myself, of course, you know, a big part of the outreach is the website and the blog and the star calendar that are part of the website. But I'm also giving talks at local astronomy society meetings. And even at the end of the week here, I'm going to be giving a training session to some of the operators from the Flandreau Planetarium and the Mount Lemmon Sky Center here in Tucson so that when they give their programs to the general public, that they can incorporate some of this Arab star knowledge and, and cultural material, again, to uh, you know breathe some new life into uh, some of these star stories and inspire that next generation of astronomers. Uh, that's really what it all comes down to, is getting that next generation excited about astronomy and you know, in my case, I guess seeing it from a very different perspective. So outreach is always a big component of the NASA space grant. And then, of course, you would have your research that you're conducting. And, you know, in my case, it, it just worked out perfectly because I was just entering the dissertation phase of my graduate program. And so I'm really excited that I get to focus my research and then take the outputs of the research and put it right into the website and blog for the general public to consume. That really is quite cool because as somebody who is a non-academic who likes to read about science, you know, we don't get that much access to something as someone's researching it like that. That's a really, really cool component. Yeah. And, um, and it's kind of a disclaimer too, right? Because, uh, because <laughs> part of the website is a star calendar and part of it is a star catalog and you know those are both very much unfinished because the work is ongoing and it's going to the website as I do the research well that's that actually kind of seems fitting in this day and age in a world of blogging and that way you also have new content being generated <laughs> right right yeah it makes it um really neat to my uh, hope in the beginning was to have people follow along. Of course, the problem is that back in the day when these star calendars were being used, they work in the morning, uh, about 45 minutes before sunrise, which isn't really a popular time. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so fortunately, uh, you can also see the same stars just with a different orientation in the evening about the same time of year. So that part does work out nicely. <laughs> what was one of the biggest surprises that she ran into during your research? It was just one of those, oh, hey, gee, well, kind of moments. What was one of your biggest takeaways with dealing with not only uh, Arabic cultures, but also comparing it with uh, possibly other star legends? Well, I would say two things, uh, very different things. One, just at a kind of a surface level, is that it was quickly apparent to me that even though I already knew that most of the internationally recognized star names were of Arabic origin, until I really dug into this research, I didn't realize how few of those actually predate the influence of Greek astronomy, because uh, so many of the Arabic star names 
do point to Greek pictures of the sky. And so that was a surprise to see how much of that material there was and how much less there was of what predates that. But the other thing is a very interesting shocker, and that's that in a bunch of different kinds of sources, there's this ancient legend that's told. And to me, it's absolutely fascinating. It's really one of the very few legends that you see about the night sky that was told among the Arabs. And the amazing thing is that it describes actual proper motion of the star Sirius in the sky. And essentially the legend goes that there was a beautiful woman, her name was Josette, and we would see her stars today as the stars of Orion. But for the Arabs, this was a female figure. And she got engaged to this man named Suhail. And Suhail today is what we would know as the star Canopus, uh, the second brightest star in the night sky. Now, Suhail lived across the river with his two sisters in Arabic, Asheriyan. And that ending of the word an signifies the duel in Arabic. And uh, we'll see that a lot tonight here on the program. Um, uh, they saw pairs of things as a rather important and uh, we see that a lot in the night sky. Well, anyways, uh, Suhail and his two sisters were excited about the marriage and you know, the engagement and the coming marriage. But on their wedding night, something happened. We don't really know what happened. There's different variations of the legend. But in all variations, the wedding night ends with Josette dead. And at that time... Suhail fears for his life. He fears the blood vengeance that would be enacted upon him by the family of Josat. And so he flees far to the south. And in fact, if you look out at the night sky, certainly when I grew up in New Jersey, I couldn't even see Canopus because my latitude was too far north. Here in Tucson, I'm very fortunate to see this second brightest star in the night sky. Uh, and when it's up, it's due south, pretty much. It just comes up a little bit, makes a little arc, and then goes right back down. It always is an indicator of south. So Canopus uh, Suhail, as he was known among the Arabs, fled to the south. Well, his two sisters did very different things. One of his sisters crossed over the river to be closer to her brother. His other sister did not cross over the river. His other sister stayed behind and just cried and cried and cried. And in Arabic, that sister's name is Ashara al-Rumaysat. So the Shara who is bleary-eyed and has pus in her eyes. So she's dimmer. And uh, that star we know today as Procyon, which is a little bit dimmer than the star Sirius. Sirius is the other sister. And in Arabic, this was Ashara al-Abor, the Shara who crossed over the river to be close to her brother. Now, the amazing thing is that actually Sirius is the brightest star in the sky in part because it's so close to the earth. And just as we see the moon move against the background stars from night to night, and we see the planets move against the background stars over a longer period of time, the stars that are closest to us 
we can also see move against the background of stars that are much further away and appear fixed. And indeed, if you run a planetarium simulation program, 50,000 years ago, the star Sirius was on the other side of the Milky Way galaxy as we see the river in the night sky. And so it's, it's an amazing legend that actually describes the proper motion of Sirius. Now, it doesn't mean, uh, lest you uh, run away with wild ideas, it doesn't mean that the legend itself is necessarily 50,000 years old. It may only be 20,000 or 10,000 years old, just old enough to have seen some motion of the star coming out of the river onto the uh, western bank. But uh, that, to me, was uh, one of the most amazing discoveries when I actually connected that legend to the motion of Sirius throughout the night sky. That is really incredibly fascinating. One of these ideas that doesn't come up very often in Western culture or something that a lot of people in Western culture aren't aware of are the great contributions by the early Arabs to scientific knowledge. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your project is trying to help shift perceptions in Western culture of the contribution of Arab culture to the knowledge that we have today. Absolutely. That's something that's close to my heart. I think, you know, a lot of times if you go through a history of astronomy textbook, for example, um, you're presented with a a rather linear view of the history of astronomy. The Babylonians and Mesopotamians figured out some things, and then the Greek figured out some more things, and then... The Arabs built on that, and you know you get this kind of linear view, and it really wasn't that way. There was a lot of back and forth interactions, and there were many scientific advances that came about centuries before they were developed among Europeans. For example, a heliocentric solar system model. But also, one of my big focuses here is to really draw attention to the fact that science is broader than just what's mathematical. You know, science is composed of observations, and you repeat observations and you detect patterns from those observations. So, you know, although, you know, a lot of what I've been studying doesn't involve mathematical models and predictions of orbits and things like this, In fact, it is science because the Arabs during this time would use the motions of the stars to precisely time seasonal changes. And those seasonal changes heralded changes in meteorology and in flora and fauna and even human social cycles that happened at different times of the year. And this was all predicted and forecast by the regular recurring motion of the stars throughout the sky. And so this is science too. And it's an important part of science that is often overlooked because it's not math, but it's very important. And it's uh, the foundations of what does come later, including mathematical science. You know, I'm always saying how once upon a time, basically everyone was an astronomer. Because you had to know the night sky. It was a survival skill. 
it's easy for us to forget that in this day and age when most of us, I, I live in Hoboken, New Jersey. I can see maybe a dozen stars in the sky at night. It's hard for us to gauge what kind of relationship people had with the stars in the pre-electric era. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I love about this research. So as I mentioned before, there's a lot of astronomy in the old Arabic poetry. And you can tell that in many cases, the use of astronomy in this poetry is not just figurative, it's actually literal. There are several poets who repeatedly use the position of the stars to set the time frame for their poetry. And so they use the motion of the stars like a celestial clock to, again, set the time frame for the, you know, what happens in the poem. They might combine that with mentioning that a certain kind of you know, lavender or other kind of plant is flowering, which then kind of fixes the season. So then with a stellar position in the season, you can determine the time of night or vice versa. So indeed, the poets and many other people in society had a great knowledge of the night sky and they knew its rhythms and they knew its motions. And so when a poet references these things, the people who are hearing the poem understand what the poet means because they too know where the stars belong in the sky. Now, another question with reference to the planetariums themselves, you were indicating that you were training other folks that do planetarium presentations on how to present this. If you have a chance, would there be a planetarium presentation that would a formalized planetarium presentation just on this alone that may be distributed to planetaria or going through a planetarium production agency is that possibly in the works after all is said and done with this that's definitely one of my goals the nasa space grant that i have is a grant that is possibly renewable for a second year and so if i were to continue for that second year then that is one of the things that I would hope to do is to have a full-blown planetarium program developed and at least the audio portion of the tour. Of course, these days, there's all kinds of fancy multimedia presentations that would take quite some time and expense to do. But um, I would definitely like to see this as something that is transferable and portable, that even small planetaria can take the script and guide people through the night sky even without all the fancy video and whatnot, just seeing the stars and pointing them out and, and seeing the shapes in a different way. As, as a former planetarium presenter, again, locally here at the County College of Morris so over in, uh, in Randolph here, that's just an exciting proposition to be able to go ahead and talk about this. So I'm hoping that indeed does happen. One of the, the other things I was thinking as you were talking about some of what you were really, really excited about with the project is what were you hoping that individuals would walk away from all of this, that you know, if they go ahead, take a look at your research, take a look at the website, take a look at, go outside and be able to go ahead and find these asterisms for themselves. What is the huge takeaway that you'd want somebody who even just has a passing interest in astronomy to take away from this entire project? Well, I would say the number one takeaway would be a renewed sense of, of wonder at looking at the night sky. There are fantastic constellations in the night sky, the way the ancient Arabs saw them. 
that dwarf even the largest of constellations that we know of today in Western astronomy. You know, the Arab lion, Al-Assad, was so large, it took up about 135 degrees of sky when all of it was wow. up. And, Whoa. you know, that's, wow. I, mean, I call that a mega constellation. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's amazing. And, you know, when you look at it, at the heart of it is Leo, you would recognize that. But then there's these huge arms and claws that reach forward into Gemini and legs that reach back into Virgo and um, Bootis. And, you know, when you look at that in the night sky and you imagine that as like one contiguous constellation, uh, you just stand in awe. You know, when you look at the star Sirius and, you know, you hear the, the myth that I uh, recounted just a little bit ago about the sister who crossed over the river and that the star actually did that and inspires you with a sense of wonder. And I think sometimes, at least for myself, I know, you know, when I was growing up, when you discover new things, it's amazing and it's wondrous. But sometimes you can get into a rut, as amazing as certain bits of the night sky are, you know, the Orion Nebula through a telescope and the Andromeda Galaxy and the Pleiades star cluster, all these wonderful things. You can nevertheless get used to it and it becomes normal and routine and I think learning such a very different picture of the night sky brings back that wonder and I, I think another th really neat thing about this project is that it's so accessible you don't need a telescope in fact you're not allowed to use a telescope or binoculars for this so no one so no one buying a telescope should ruin stargazing for the next week with cloudy skies <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but it's it's really it's it's wonderful. Um, you know, I myself, I you know, I have a couple of telescopes, and you know, I certainly enjoy them. But uh, when I started getting into this research, I rediscovered naked eye astronomy, and it's just really wonderful to uh, look with your own eyes, your two unaided eyes, and just see different pictures, different lines that connect the stars and, and understand the different meanings behind those lines. So I think that's the number one takeaway is just to, you know, inspire people with a, a renewed sense of wonder at the night sky and, and also a, a greater appreciation and understanding of Arab culture, uh, which again, you know, we usually only hear the bad things these days in the media. And so it's, it's nice to hear about some of the interesting things that would happen in culture. And a lot of that is coming out through the way that the sky is drawn. So for example, we started the blog series in October, again, about three weeks after it would have started in September due to the procession of the equinoxes. And we started at that time because there was a very important asterism that was setting. And that asterism is the well bucket. Now, we would recognize it today as the square of Pegasus. But for the Arabs, it was a giant well bucket. And the well bucket is really well articulated. On each side, there's a spout. 
there's also crossbars that form the bucket. Now you might be saying it's a square, <laughs> it's not a bucket. But in those times, the way you form a bucket is you take a large leather pouch and then you grab two sticks and you cross them at the mouth of the pouch to keep the mouth open. You tie them together in the middle and then that rope can then connect up to the well from which you dip the bucket into the water. And so as you're looking at the mouth of the bucket, indeed the two sticks, the crossbars, make the square shape out of the rims of the bucket. And so in a fantastically poetic description of the night sky, the well bucket actually, as it was setting, it started and ended the year in terms of the rainy cycles. So that as the first two stars of the well bucket set, that was the end of the year. And then the next two stars started the new year. And so you have this well bucket setting into the horizon. And at the same time, at that very time in the year, the heavy autumnal rains start. It's like here in Tucson, and uh, Kat will remember this, uh, we, <laughs> we, wait. <laughs> we wait all through the spring. It's usually very dry. We don't see much rain, although you can get surprised. It is Tucson. But usually uh, it gets very dry, and then you wait and wait and wait. It gets very, very hot, hotter and hotter. And then you know that in the summer, usually around July, maybe August if it's late, the monsoon rains hit. And those are heavy, intense rains that hit at the hottest time of the summer. And you long for them because the earth is dry and it's parched. And this is basically the point, a uh, similar point in the cycle for the Arabs in the fall when you know it was very dry throughout the summer. And these are the first heavy rains of the year that hit just at the time that the well bucket is dumping its celestial water, so to say, onto the earth, the rains start. And uh, the rains are called uh, wasmi rains from the Arabic word yesima, wasama in the past tense. And it means to mark. And they're called that because they mark the earth with green. And again, Kat, you'll remember from your time here in Tucson that once those monsoon rains begin, things become green in just a matter of days for some of the plant species. Others might take a little bit longer. And so uh, those rains literally mark the earth with green. It's beautiful poetry. And, and, and for anyone who's ever lived in a desert that gets monsoons, uh, whether in Tucson or in the Middle East, we'll, we'll recognize that the desert does bloom in these beautiful, gorgeous colors that when you've been looking at shades of red and brown and yellows for a very long dry season it's it's like a feast for your eyes <laughs> it really it really is uh I kind of I'm longing for that now <laughs> even as living in somewhere that's that's very wet all the time it feels like now I'm like oh I want that monsoon come on over anytime <laughs> <laughs> I love You've mentioned so much how, how much poetry is involved in your research of this. And, and I remember you saying earlier in this episode that 
you read an article and, and found that there's a large body of the literature that hadn't yet been translated. Are you doing some of the first translations of this literature into English for your research? Yes, there are multiple kinds of sources that I'm using for this research. Some of it is the poetry directly, and uh, some of that poetry has been translated into English, uh, some has not. But then there's a whole genre of books called Enwat books. And to go into the Enwat is a whole episode in itself, probably. But essentially, uh, the Enwat were rain stars. And when they set, they heralded the onset or the middle or the end of a rainy season, uh, just as I described with the well bucket. Well, there's this genre of Enwat books stretched over the course of a few hundred years, and not many of them survive today, but we are fortunate to have a few good ones that survive, mostly intact. And so these books have not been translated into English as a whole, you know, maybe little bits and pieces uh, for other you know, research projects. And so as I plot along in my own research, you know, as I require the knowledge from different portions of the books, then I am translating that. And so it's my hope that in a few years, <laughs> maybe if I'm optimistic, uh, that I might be able to put out some English translations of some of these old, old books about the night sky. Ah, oh, that's just, I love it. I can't love it enough. I mean, you know me, I love poetry and I love astronomy. And just to know that there's this body of literature that talks about the stars and, and, and the importance of them and, and what you were just saying, I'm excited to know that they might be available to me in a language I can read soon. <laughs> so I'll be definitely keeping my fingers crossed for for that. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. So, but dissertation first and then we'll see what happens afterward. <laughs> it's pretty profound and, and and really interesting when someone in, in academia is taking and translating something for the first time into another language. So that might have, you know, maybe not resonated with our listeners as much as it resonated to me as an academic. So I just want to just wanted to point out that that's that's a really interesting and very valuable part of, of what Danielle is doing to make a culture accessible to us in a way uh, that is inaccessible to many people, especially in the United States, because many of us don't speak a second language. And even within within academic research, you're the first person doing a translation or, or the first, party, first person doing a complete. So it deserves a lot of recognition. So Danielle, I just, I want to highlight that because that's really an amazing part of what you're doing beyond even this really interesting and I think timely project with Two Deserts, One Sky. I think it's the kind of project we need right now as a society. <laughs> but beyond that, you know, the, the academic side of what you're doing is, is really important and fascinating. Oh, thank you. You know, I think you guys got into something very interesting, actually, talking about the monsoons, because it shows, I, I like how this project between the sky, between you guys talking about monsoons, on opposite sides of this planet, shows a lot about 
the shared experience of being human, that it's not simply about locale, that, that there are these shared experiences that you can talk about and even write poetry about that <laughs> bring us all together. And I think we need a little more of a reminder of that as often as possible. Absolutely. Now, Danielle, we're, we're coming to, unfortunately, the end of the time we have tonight in order to keep this from going from hours, which I suspect we could do. <laughs> Easily. <laughs> <laughs> and we really just want to give you just some time to not only maybe wrap up anything that you think we may have missed that's important to you to talk about on Talking Space, but also I want to give you a chance to thank some of the people who have been involved in this project, because I know that in academia we can do nothing alone. <laughs> We always need some help, even if we're the one in the trenches doing the work. So, you know. Also true in every other aspect of life Absolutely. for all you listeners. That's-, <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. yes, certainly I would love to uh, recognize people who helped make this project possible. And the way the NASA Space Grant works is NASA just doesn't give all the funding for the project but NASA partners with your institution to do a kind of cost-sharing program. And so, you know, for myself, this project is funded, of course, in part by NASA through the NASA Space Grant Consortium here in Arizona, and also through my own department's the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies and the School of Anthropology. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, in the context of training people for bringing this cultural material into the night sky during observing programs, uh, I'm really fortunate to have the Flandreau Planetarium and Science Center, as well as the Mount Lemmon Sky Center as partners in this project. And those are both uh, associated with the University of Arizona here in Tucson. Flandreau is located right on campus, and then the Sky Center is located at the top of Mount Lemmon. And both see quite a number of visitors each year, and they're doing a fantastic job in educating people about the night sky themselves. And so I'm very thankful to them and really hope that the work that I do uh, lets them do their work even better and uh, that they get a whole new crop of well-interested people who just can't get enough of the night sky. And if there's one last thought you could leave our listeners with, what would that be? I would say just get out there and get a fresh perspective of the night sky. A neat thing about this project is that you don't need much. If you want to do it like they did many years ago, kind of need an alarm clock (laughs) to get out early. And as uh, it's getting lighter, it's getting earlier and earlier to get out. But you don't have to do that. You can come home from work, step outside when the sky gets dark, and follow along uh, with our star calendar and uh, star catalog and see the sky from a whole new perspective. And who knows what that might inspire you to do, to research. It's something that you can share easily with your kids and help them see another culture through fresh eyes and eyes that are maybe uh, unclouded by prejudice and preconceived notions of, you know, what Arabs are like. It's a really, really great spot to end on. 
And will you just remind everyone again what places online we can find the project, whether the website, social media? Absolutely. You can find it by going to onesky.arizona.edu. And that's one sky spelled out, O-N-E-S-K-Y. And that will take you right to the main page. And from there, you can access the Star Calendar blog and the Arabic Star Catalog. Again, both of those are in progress and being added on to regularly. And then we also have a Facebook page. If you search for Two Deserts, One Sky, you'll find that Facebook page. And I'll also disseminate the blog post through there. That is absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to follow along further. I've read what you have up so far, and I don't get to see stars in the sky all that often, but <laughs> I was recently out in your neck of the woods and actually went out and looked up and looked at the posts that you'd put up, and it was very, very, very interesting, and especially since I was actually looking at the same exact sky that you look at. So I want to thank you so much for doing this project in the first place, as well as for coming on this show to talk about it. I'm sure we could talk to you for hours and ask a million more questions. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on the program. It's really a great honor. And you, know, you folks are doing a fantastic service yourselves in uh, getting people excited about space in all of its aspects. Oh, well, thank you very much. We we take a lot of pride in trying to do that and trying to do things that are a little offbeat, like featuring this. And we hope it gets people thinking a little bit differently about that night sky that we all love so much. So, again, thank you so much for joining us, Danielle Adams. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And thank you again, Kat Robison. Oh, it was wonderful just to be here tonight and and lovely to to share something that a friend of mine is doing from a university that I love. Aw. And thank you so much, Jean McCulka, for your very interesting questions. Yeah, Cassie, if I can't, uh, I can't think of a better reason to go ahead and turn off the PlayStation for one night or turn off the television and uh, go outside and enjoy the majesty that is the night sky. And uh, Danielle Adams, thank you for sharing your insights on the way another culture has seen the night sky and the, and the star legends around them. So again, thanks so much for coming on here. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And so that wraps up a very special episode of Talking Space. We will resume our normal schedule as of next week. We hope you enjoyed this diversion and that you'll come again next week for our usual news. So wherever you are, I hope you're having a great time. <laughs>